Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. The show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups, handcrafting the very best guitar pickups all the way from down in Detroit. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. To support the show on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash Music. And I'm also available for speaking engagements. Email info at brentjensenmusic.com for details on that. All right. My guest this week is writer, photographer, and authorized biographer of both Alice Cooper and Iggy Pop. His name is Mr. Jeffrey Morgan. Jeffrey just released a new coffee table book called Rock Critic Confidential, chronicling his many years interviewing the likes of Kiss, Lou Reed, Ted Nugent, and so many others. He and I get into the book in detail here. Have a listen. So Rock Critic Confidential is the new book, and uh, it contains over 50 years of your writing and photography. And I love how the book, you know, we're talking uh, earlier, I love how the book's put together. The layout is great. Um, It's in a magazine style. You are a photographer as well as a writer. Works on on both fronts there, appear in the book. And it's just, it's a compelling book. I love it. Well, I appreciate that. I'm very, very lucky, very blessed by God to be able to do it. So most of the writing that you did for Cream appears in the book, and uh, that happened after you were recruited by Cream editor Lester Banks himself. So the book opens with the actual handwritten letter to you from Lester on Cream letterhead, suggesting that you think about reviewing records for the magazine, and this is based on funny letters that you had written into Cream that he had responded to. It's astonishing because... I live in Toronto, and I had no intentions. First of all, I didn't know I could write. I had no intentions of writing. Hmm. I had no intentions about writing about rock and roll. The only time I'd ever written about rock and roll was in high school. I wrote an essay called The Poetry of Rock. I I remember one of the songs was uh, Cry Baby Cry by the Beatles, and there Mm -hmm. was probably a Pete Townshend song. So I did that for an English class, and then... I went to see the Rolling Stones in 1972, and I wrote a concert review the next day Mm -hmm. for my own amusement, and I filed it away. And that's all I ever did. And I had no no interest in writing. I didn't know I could write, but I'd always written letters to comic books. Yeah. And Marvel Comics published a lot of my letters. And then as an act of maturity, I graduated from writing letters to comic books to writing letters to Cream Magazine. And that's as far as I took it. And then Lester Bangs, I realized in retrospect, because there's a letter that's printed in the book where at the end of one of my letters, I ask if, if they have a Creamsters union. And he goes, yeah. He goes, are like, you dissipated enough to qualify? <laughs> and I realized just recently like a couple of weeks ago when I was looking at it, I realized that anybody else would have jumped on that and said, yeah. And they would have started, you know, like petitioning to write. And, and I looked at it and I went, yeah, okay, that's nice. And I didn't follow up on it. Mm-hmm. And I just kept sending letters in. And it was incredibly selfless of this man who had written for Rolling Stone and was now the editor of Cream. Mm-hmm. And he's in America and I'm sitting in Toronto, and it was incredibly selfless of him and generous to offer me to write for the magazine because 
I didn't ask for it, and I had no writing skills aside from writing letters to the editor, and I had no potential that I knew of, and I wasn't interested in it. And for him to extend that offer to somebody who lives in another country to write for America's greatest rock and roll band, their greatest rock and roll magazine, was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. If he hadn't done that, I would have continued writing letters to the editor for a while, and then I probably would have stopped, and I never would have written anything at all. I think that's absolutely fascinating. It's all because of him. If anybody buys the book, which is called Rock Card Confidential, it's on sale now. Mm -hmm. If you go to Amazon or any of your local bookmongers, if there's any stores around that still uh, are in business, they'll be selling it. Yeah, if you don't like the book, blame Lester Banks, because literally, (laughs) except for two poems that I wrote in 1965, Literally, uh, nothing in the book would have existed if he hadn't sent me that letter. Yeah, and it and it took me a year to get published. And the first time I got published was as a photographer because I really didn't want to be a writer. I wanted to be a rock photographer, which is why I was taking all these photos. That's uh, you know a, a great point of difference for the book because not only is there some great writing in there, but there's some great photos too. Alice Cooper, Iggy Pop, who you incidentally are the authorized biographer for both of those individuals as well. How did, how did that come about? Honestly, it, it's a blessing from God. Everything that I ever did just fell into my lap. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask for it, but because I had written a record review, an Alice record review in 1980, and then I'd written a piece about Alice in the time when Alice couldn't get arrested and nobody really cared about him and everybody had forgotten about him. And I wrote a couple of pieces about him for Cream, basically saying, don't forget about this guy, because this guy used to be a real troublemaker way back when. And his personal assistant got in contact with me, and I ended up having a rapport with him. And then when it came time for Warner Brothers to put out an Alice Cooper box set, years later, it just sort of fell into place that I ended up doing it. It was just a, it was just a, a series of events. Wow. And how about Iggy Pop? It was the same thing. When Cream folded, a gentleman who's no longer with us, who, who I miss very much, uh, by the name of Robert Matthew, who was a very big-time uh, music and fashion photographer, he ended up getting the rights to the Cream website around 2003. Okay. And he asked me to write for the website. And then through my friendship with him and his friendship with Iggy, when it evolved that Robert was going to put out an authorized Stooges book, then because I knew Robert, I ended up writing the biography with him. Ah, wow. That's great. And all of this leads back to the fact that Lester Bangs wrote me that letter and said, hey, kid, you got potential. Otherwise, none of this would have happened. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it really started with you writing letters to magazines. And you know what? Yeah, I, but I, I, also wrote, I also wrote letters to uh, DC and Marvel. And, you know, nobody asked me to write comic books. So yeah. it's a very tenuous thing. He saw the wit and the potential that I didn't see. And he was generous enough to extend a hand and say, you can do this on a professional level. Yeah. You're wasting your time writing letters. It took over a year for me to finally get in the magazine. But once I got in the magazine, I was in every single issue for about 15 years. Yeah. 
I, I just think that's so great. You know, I, I was thinking when I was a kid, I'd written letters to Marvel as well, but you actually got responses because of the style of your writing. You know, I, I thought like, my, you know, my best chance to get in is to be really sincere and complimentary and kind of almost genteel. And you took the opposite route. You were sardonic and kind of smart assy about it. And I that, grew, I grew up reading Mad Magazine. Yeah. Like Harvey, Harvey Kurtzman and Will Elder. Yeah. You know, and then I discovered Ernie Kovacs in this in the seventies, and then around the same time I discovered Michael O'Donohue, mm. and and those are sort of my patron saints of humor. Yeah. And I remember it's my first letter that was printed was in Batman oh. in nineteen sixty six DC. Yeah, and I was I would have been about twelve years old at the time, and it's extraordinary because the first line in the letter is being human and then it just went on like that so it, it's just it's something that was always there see this is a lesson to uh, today's youth jeffrey be a smart ass well be creative <laughs> I, I think i think the less there's two lessons that that can be learned because right now more than ever in the history of the world more people because of amazon and consumer reviews more words are being written now that have ever been written in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And more photographs have been taken than have ever been taken. But just because you have a cell phone camera and you can take a picture, it doesn't make you a photographer. And just because you write a consumer review of a book that you bought on Amazon or you have a blog, it doesn't make you a writer. So there's a difference between typing and actually writing. And I was just lucky enough to be able to, to do it and hopefully entertain people along the way. Mm. Well, you certainly did. There's a lot of great stuff in this book. I want, I want to go through a couple of things that, that really got my attention, if you don't mind. There's a funny exchange with Bob Dylan that was considered to be the shortest interview ever. when <laughs> He was performing, and he starts talking about a song that he's about to play. And it was from the record that the band did called Planet Waves, I think. And so he made it an off-the-cuff comment. He said it sold 12 copies or something. And, and he yelled out, why? <laughs> it's a true story. And then he kicked you out. I was sitting in the front row. Yeah. And I was taking pictures. And the, and the photos are in the book. And I was sitting there. And, and during a break when I wasn't taking pictures, you know, I was sitting with, with, with my friend Tom Robe who also took a bunch of pictures of me that are in the book. And we were just sitting there and, and he goes up and he goes, uh, his next song's by, you know, I used to do with the, with the band. You remember the band, don't you? He goes, it was on an album called Planet Waves. Sold about 12 copies. And he walked away from the microphone. And as he's walking away and I'm just sitting in the front row. So there's not a lot of space. And I just leaned my head up and I went, why? <laughs> and he stopped. And he sort of turned back towards the microphone and over his shoulder, he went, I don't know, man. I don't know. Right. And then he kept walking. Oh, no, that's how I typed it up. Yeah. When I sent it in, they changed it to read, get this guy out of here. Yeah. Right. Which was funnier. Ah, okay. Right? <laughs> but I tell the true story, you know, you can hear it on a bootleg, but I tell the true story in the book, but yeah, I just, you know, I went, why? And, and you know, he stopped That's and he answered great. it. Yeah. That's funny. Um, there's also a, a part in the book where you administer a Rorschach inkblot test to Gary Newman. <laughs> Whose idea was that? Mine. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I, I have to admit, 
you know, I, I get bored during, you know, talking to people. So I figured I got to have to do stuff that's going to like, you know, keep me interested. And I just had this idea that I would go and I would give him a written, you know, a three or four page written questionnaire. And I would give him an inkblot test. And I had a, a friend of mine, Dean Motter, who created the Mr. X character, the comic book. And I went to him and I said, you know, do me half a dozen inkblots. And he did a couple of 11 by 14 inkblots, you know, on cardboard. And then I typed up a questionnaire and I left spaces for him to fill in the answers. And I just showed up cold with this questionnaire and with my friend Tom taking photos and the ink blots. And I got to tell you, he was the coolest guy in the world. Yeah. And this is when he was, uh, this was at the, the height of his arena career okay. where he was selling out like Maple Leaf Gardens and Madison Square Gardens. And this is on the telecon tour. And I show up with a photographer, a <laughs> tape recorder, ink blots, a written questionnaire. And he sat there and he did everything like he didn't even blink an eye. He didn't even <laughs> say, what is this? Or why are you doing it? He just, he was the coolest guy. He just went, okay. And he filled in the questionnaire and then he did the ink blot test and then he did the taper and my friends taking photos. He was a champ. That is so great. Knowing there was absolutely zero psychological or medical merit whatsoever involved. No, in he didn't even <laughs> ask. He didn't even blink an eye. That is, and this is, this is the other thing too, that I found out that's really important because was, we were talking about writing mm -hmm. and that goes back to, to the, to the train of thought that I had about the writing. Everybody takes writing, uh, does writing and everybody takes photographs. It doesn't mean you can write. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't mean that you have a personality. Everybody's writing these days is dry as dust. And a lot of people write for magazines and they do it because they have to make a living. Mm -hmm. So they have to do it to put food on the table, to pay their rent. That means if you're writing for a magazine or you're writing for a newspaper and that's your job, more often than not, you probably have to end up writing about people you don't care about, but you're assigned to do it. So you end up writing about people that you're not interested in. And I was lucky enough that I only wrote about people that I was a fan of. I knew their careers inside out. And frankly, the only reason I wanted to meet them is I had the avenue to meet them and get all my albums autographed. <laughs> that was the reason, because how else would I ever get to meet these people? So I would get to meet them. And I would get, I would bring over, bring in a couple of albums to get autographed. And then it just happened that I'd have these very cool conversations with them, but they were very cool people. But the writing, a lot of people now, it's just dry as dust. There's mm -hmm. no, there's nothing to it. And the other trick too is that I found. Uh -huh. Lester Bangs once had this famous comment where he said, the rock star is not your friend. And this isn't true for me. Like the rock star is my friend. Mm -hmm. All rock stars are my friend. And because primarily I only spoke to people that I was a huge fan of, if you go and meet somebody and they know that you're a huge fan of theirs mm -hmm. and that you know their career inside out and you bought all their albums and you bought tickets to their concerts, if they know that you're one of the people that helped make them a millionaire, and then that you're on their side and you're not there because it's an assignment and you have to fill in the blanks to get a paycheck. Mm -hmm. You can ask them anything. The worst 
hideous question in the world and they will answer you, you're not picking a fight with them. You care about them. You know their career inside out and they will answer you honestly in a way that they will never answer for anybody else because they know that you help make them a millionaire. Yeah. See, I noticed that you did that with Ted Nugent when you talked about the titles of his records. Yeah. If you, I called Ted Nugent a, car, a cartoon character yeah. and he didn't blink. He just thought about it. And yeah, and you can't do it. If you just walk in and you have a preconceived, but that's the thing. Everybody that I talk to in the book, I'm a big fan of. Mm-hmm. I've got their records. I want to get their autograph. So I don't have a bone to pick with them. I don't have an agenda. I'm not. But then again, I can ask them questions. A lot of people don't like Ted Nugent. Mm. A lot of people don't like Lee Reed. They'll ask them questions and they won't get the answers. Mm-hmm. Because they intuitively, because these people, regardless of what you think of them, they're smarter than you and me because they had to be that smart to get to where they are. Mm-hmm. So if you show up, it's going to take them a very short amount of time to know whether you know your stuff and whether you're trying to pick a fight. And if you ask them a question and you're trying to pick a fight with them, they won't answer you and they'll be combative. But if they know that you're a fan and you love their stuff, you can ask the same questions and they'll just play straight with you Mm -hmm. and they'll just answer you honestly because they know, as I said, that you're on their side. So I can call, I can tell Ted Nugent that he's become a cartoon character (laughs) based on his album covers and he'll just answer me straight and, and, and there won't be any, he won't get his, uh, he won't, you know, get uh, ready to pick a fight with you. That's right. Yeah, no, he, he actually concedes a little bit. It's like he kind of said, really? Do you think yeah. so? Instead of yeah. saying, Who, you know, get out of here. Exactly, because he knows, and that's why it was very revealing at the end, where he says, you know, I, that's the one time I asked, you know, if you are that open with all, and he says, no, he says, I'm not that open. But mm-hmm. he says, I was told that you were aware of my career. And that makes a big difference. That does. Certainly it does. Yeah. Because then he knows I'm not punching a time clock and just talking to him to fill a couple of columns so I can get a paycheck. He knows that I'm really invested in his career. Yeah. And so he'll talk about anything and he'll say anything. And he might say something at the beginning to just test me whether I'll pick a fight with him. Mm -hmm. But if you just let people talk and you let them be honest, you'll get a lot more from them. Then, you know, like I asked Ian Hunter how it felt to have all his albums deleted. (laughs) And he just asked, he just honestly said, you know, I think it sucks. And if you just walk in and ask him that, he's just going to look at you and go, where's this, where's this coming from? Yeah. But if he knows that you're a fan and that's the the key that I found is, is once you do that, once you're the guy that spent all your hard earned money as a kid on them, you can get away with anything. Mm-hmm. And you're not getting away with anything. You're just a genuine fan wanting to know these things. Yeah. Have you ever been in a situation where that was not the case, where you spoke to somebody who just had, you know, a massive rocks or ego, regardless of whether or not you were a fan? And it just Only once. Yeah. Only once, and it wasn't my interview. It was a reverse thing where a good friend of mine was interviewing Patti Smith. Okay. And I was there to take photos. And my friend 
was a big Patti Smith fan and he was a big garage rock fan and he was showing her albums, you know, the seeds and the 13th floor elevators and all these things and everything. And she either had a bad day or just wasn't interested. Mm. And I remember one of the lines she said, she said, like, you boys come in here and you show me album covers. Other people give me albums. And then she went, and then, of course, like Lenny, it's in a hotel room, and Lenny Kay's in the next room. Yeah. And Lenny Kay is a writer, and he's a rock critic, and he happens to be a guitarist in the band. So she goes to the next room, and she goes, Lenny, come out here and talk to these boys, will you? Lenny Kay comes out. Lenny Kay did the Nuggets box set. Uh-huh. So Lenny Kay is on the same wavelength as my friend. And they get along like a proverbial house on fire. Uh-huh. And Lenny Kay is everything that Patti Smith was incapable of being. But it wasn't my interview. I just happened to eavesdrop. That's the only time that I've been in a situation like that Mm. where somebody just either was having a bad day or wasn't interested. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. You know, I used to think that Lou Reed was that way until I until I read your book. Just because I'd seen so many interviews where he was flippant and kind of standoffish with people. I think that's because most people went to talk to him and they either had an agenda mm-hmm. or they didn't know their stuff. Or in the case of Lester Bangs, you sort of had a guy who was half boozy talking to a guy who was half boozy. And basically you end up where you've got, you know, two old men just sort of looking at each other, you know, drooling and spitting. Yeah. And there's no fun in that. I mean, it's fun to read, but you don't get anything out of it. That's why when I wanted to meet him, I didn't know what I was going to get. But again, if you read the, uh, the interview, the first thing I do is talk to him about sports. Mm-hmm. And nobody's talking to him about sports. You know, Lester Banks talking to him about stuff that Lester was interested in. But no one's going to talk to Lou Reed about playing sports. I showed up with a bag full of records to get autographed. Lou Reed knew that I knew my stuff. And, and we got along fine. And we sat there for three hours three and we hours. had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a three-hour lunch session. At the end, you recommended, uh, towards the end, you recommended he record a a comedy record. (laughs) I maintain that's why he did. (laughs) To this day, I maintain that's why he did Take No Prisoners because they kept haranguing him to do a live comedy album. Yeah. And then he ended up doing it. And if you listen to the live, and it validates the conversation because there's a point in it early on where Lou goes like, why do not people believe me? I try to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. So when he tells that whole story about, you know, pole vaulting and playing football and all that, if you listen to take no prisoners, you know, on one of the tracks, he actually basically tells the same story. Mm -hmm. So that validates the fact that he is telling the truth, but no one's going to talk to Lou Reed and say like, you know, how the first question is going to be, have you always been interested in sports? You know, they're going to talk about John Kaler, the Velvet Underground. They're going to talk about drugs or they're going to talk about. Those are the things that, that interested me. Yeah. And I figure if they interest me, they must interest somebody else. Certainly. Because you don't want to talk about the same old stuff over and over and over again. Well, and that's the thing, Jeffrey. I mean, the, the questions Lou Reed would face on a day-to-day basis would be, he, he would answer the same question hundreds of times, literally, right? Yeah. And, and the one thing that, I'm, that I like about it in the book because the interviews are basically tape transcriptions, you know, so it's basically, you know, a conversation pretty much in, in every interview, 
at some point, the people I'm talking to, you know, are laughing. It's nice that you can sort of see them sort of behind the scenes off. I, I like to think of it as if you were sitting at a table and you heard this conversation next to you and you knew who this guy was, you would sort of tell the people around you to be quiet because you'd sort of lean in that direction because you'd, you'd want to hear the conversation because it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like to do. I, I, I want to entertain people. I want them to read something that they're never going to get anywhere else. And I want it to be something that would be interesting that they would like to sort of eavesdrop in on. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that got my attention in the book was uh, a conversation that you had with Gene Simmons from Kiss. And this was back in 1974 when they were in Toronto. They played at a place called uh, the Victory Theater, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a rock venue. It, it, was, it was a burlesque club. And so, and so you started talking to him about that and he metaphorically kind of compared rock stars to strippers and kiss to strippers. And then, um, you started talking to him about comic books, which of course he's a huge fan of. I like the fact that when he tried to trap me, cause I was 20 at the time, but you see from the time, see, this is, this is the, where I had him at a disadvantage mm-hmm. because I was talking to him when I was 20. Well, since the time I was around 10 years old, I was reading famous monsters of Filmland. So when he tries to trap me by asking me what the first vampire film is, I was ready for him. He knew that I was going to say Dracula. And when I said Nosferatu, he was surprised. Yeah. But not as surprised when I told him that I was going to rock concerts for 10 years. Anybody who's listening to this who has seen the Beatles is better than Gene Simmons because Gene Simmons to this day regrets that he never saw the Beatles. That's right. Yep. And you saw them. Was it Maple, Maple Leaf Gardens? Garden. Yeah. Wow. And it's been downhill since then. <laughs> what was Kiss like when they played Maple Leaf Gardens? They were great at the gardens, and they were great at uh, the... Until I started with Alice Cooper's management, mm-hmm. you know, I'd seen Kiss more than any other band. I saw them oh. like seven or eight times. Wow, really? Like, oh, I'm, there isn't any kind of music I don't like. Like, I'll listen to anything. But I was a huge Kiss fan. Like, I just love the music, and I love the band. And I'm not, it's probably a character flaw of mine, Brent, but I've never outgrown anything. So if I liked something when I was 10 years old, I like it now. There's absolutely no shame in that. I've never gotten to the point where I thought that I outgrew something. Mm-hmm. And the one or two times that I thought I was all matured and grown up and I didn't need something and I got rid of some books or I got rid of some records, mm-hmm. six or eight months later, I wanted to read it or listen to it. And I had to go to a used bookstore and I had to go to a used record store and I had to buy everything back. Mm. That's why I have the Lester Bangs letter because I don't throw anything out. I archive everything. And the same thing was, so I've got all the records that I, everything I ever, you know, if I liked it then, I might not listen to it maybe once every 10 years, but when I need it, it's there and I can pull it out and listen to it. So I never outgrow anything. So I love Kiss, you know, and, and they were a great band. I love Kiss. I still love Kiss, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And I'm not one of these purists that sort of goes, well, you know, if it hasn't got, uh, if Peter and Ace aren't in the band, I go, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. You know, I'll still listen to it because the main two guys are there. Would I rather, you know, watch Kiss with Ace Frehley? Absolutely. Am I not going to watch Kiss because, you know, they're not in the band? No, because I still love Kiss. 
Yeah, I think KISS is unique in the sense that they, they get you at a young age and, and they imprint in your mind. And especially you, because you and I followed a, a similar path. I was a massive comic book fan. I loved Marvel and DC both. The natural progression I found was KISS because they were, in essence, comic book characters who played music, in my mind, as a, as a 10-year-old kid, right? And it was just those kind of strong sensations that were there. Rock and roll is rock and roll. And if you're a, if you, once you get to the point where you're a snob and some kind of music is too good for you or beneath you or anything like that, then, then you're in trouble. And then, basically, then you become what's known as a music journalist. <laughs> And then you're really in trouble. <laughs> and there's a few words about that in the book too. So yeah, that's why that's why I'm I'm a rock critic. I'm not a music journalist. I'm not an ethnomusicologist. You know, I've I have a good friend who's, who's who is, but he doesn't write like me because that's not what he does. Now I've I've had people tell me that I am. I interviewed Glenn Danzig. At the end of it, it was sort of like the Ted Nugent thing where Danzig, you know, we're talking and, and Danzig, you know, he was, we were talking about comic books. We didn't talk about music. And I said to him, I said to Danzig, I said, your face really lights up when you talk about this stuff. And he goes, well, yeah, he goes like, you know, that's, that's your job. You know, you're doing a good job as a journalist. I said, I'm not a journalist. I'm a rock critic. Hmm. And Danzig said, no, you are because you're getting me to talk more about this stuff than I've ever talked about it before. So people that people have a different definition of it, but I just configured I'm a rock critic. That's all. And I'm there to entertain people. And that's why I put the book out because it's got 200 photos that nobody's ever seen before, which are basically world-class, you know, professional grade photos. And you know, the, the writing's there and it, it's, and, and you see, it is a magazine, mm -hmm. you know, it was laid out. I'm very, very blessed to have, because the book was put together in a month. And a designer in England, Pete Kuhnleff, who does it, mm -hmm. he basically, it's one of those rare things where you end up on the same wavelength. I sort of thought, well, here's what I'd like to have. And he exceeded my expectations, which is why I gave him, inside the book, I gave him a byline. Because he did such a good job of varying it. I didn't want something that you would open up and it would just be too busy. All these books now, like if you ever look at the Stooges book, that Robert Matthew and I did. You know the Stooges, right? It's like of course, Iggy yeah. and the Stooges. It's like raw power. It's funhouse. You look at that Stooges book and the layout, it's this modern layout where it's clean type, a lot of white spaces, everything's laid out perfectly. It's so clean and so antiseptic you could cut your finger on it. There is nothing about the book that says the Stooges. Mm -hmm. It's about the Stooges. It's got photos of the Stooges. But the layout is this modern, clean, antiseptic, lots of room. To, I wanted something that was cluttered and busy and your eye didn't know where to go. Yeah. And it looked like the, like the biggest rock magazine that came out in the 70s. And that's why you may not have noticed there's no contents page. In your new book, in Rock Creek yeah. Confidential. Yes. You just have to wade into it and you don't know what's next. It's not the kind of thing where you can flip to the front and go, oh, this person's on page 23. I think I'll go there. You have no idea what's in it. Mm -hmm. You just jump because right in. You have to just wade in there and just see what comes up. And that was done intentionally. I didn't want there to be a contents page where you could just go, oh, I think I'll go here first. No, no, no. You, you just have to sort of just see what floor it stops at as you flip through it.
Yeah. Well, it's got a magazine feel. It's in the style of a, a magazine. That, and that was intentional. I wanted it to, I wanted it to be a magazine. I wanted it to be the kind of book that you couldn't publish today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's the kind of book that right. Cause the cover, the cover's got like, you know, I mean, the cover is just a dead giveaway. Yeah. <laughs> you've got, you've got, a, you've got a woman who happens to be Courtney Love, but you've got a woman on the cover, half naked, in panties, smoking a cigarette. On the back cover, you've got another woman who's like Wendy James of Transvision Vamp, half naked, right, in cut-off shorts, leaning against a Harley. Yeah. The book's called Rock Critic Confidential, you know, and in the words of Bob Dylan, you know, in tight connection to my heart, what did you expect? So, <laughs> you know... And I wanted that kind of book where, where anybody would look at it and go, no, you can't put that on the cover. You, you can't have a woman in panties smoking a cigarette. I wanted the kind of book that you would have bought in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And you would pull it out of your bookshelf now and slip through it and go, man, this is the kind of book they could never publish today. That's what I wanted to do. Well, you succeeded. That's, that's the feel that it has. Well, I... I I did the best I could with what I had. Yeah. All right. That concludes part one of my chat with Mr. Jeffrey Morgan. Tune in next week to hear us talk about his scathing review of Van Halen's Diver Down, where he calls it a vicious kick in the teeth to Van Halen fans. And we also look at his songs too. And in the history of the No Sleep Till Sudbury program, nobody has done what he does with his songs. All right, till next time, folks, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and Jeffrey Morgan. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>